So as you guys know, uh, Memorial Day is tomorrow, and I hope sometime this weekend you'll take a moment and just pause and reflect on the great sacrifices that were made on your behalf so that you can enjoy even what we're experiencing this morning, the freedom to worship, freedom to bear arms, hope you're not doing that this morning here in this room, uh, the freedom to speak freely, to choose your leaders. Remember that freedom isn't free or cheap, it's bought at a price. And I'm very thankful for the men and women who paid the highest price for our freedoms today, aren't you? Make sure you take the time over these next day or so just to remind yourself of that and choose not to forget. All right. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. For all of our uh, details-oriented people, we are back on track. All right, We're going to be in 1 Peter 3. We're back to go through the end of the passage, the whole book, uh, over these next few weeks. We're going to drop in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 17 is what we're going to cover today in true form. I'm not going to start in verse 8. I'm going to start in verse 13. I will get there, I promise. So we will cover the entire passage of 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. As you're turning there, uh, just a little announcement to make. Uh, we are, uh, Caleb Baker and I are planning a trip to Israel in 2024, about this time a year from now. And if you're interested in going on that trip to the Holy Land with Caleb and I, we're going to do basically devotion and worship together on these sites uh, around the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem in particular and just tracking some of the places that are there in the Holy Land. And uh, I can't wait to go back. I've been there before. I can't wait to go back and take some folks from our congregation. So if you're interested in that, there is a meeting coming up June the 5th. It's a Monday night at 7 p.m. If you're going to miss that meeting, let me know. We've, we're going to record that meeting as well and have that available after the meeting. Uh, but there's just some things you need to know, some information if you're thinking about that, considering that. Trying to get far enough out so people can plan ahead financially. I know it's a commitment to go on a trip like this, but I will say it'll be a trip of a lifetime if you want to go and experience something like that in May 31st through June 9th of next year, 2024. All right, so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. And, you know, the whole theme over the past couple of weeks has been expect suffering, expect hardship as Christians because we live in a, in a different world. We live in a majority culture that doesn't understand really the gospel. And so we should expect that as we live our life in a different way, as we let our light so shine before men, that as they see our good works, the hope is that they might glorify our Father in heaven, but they may not understand and interpret it in such a way. And so today is really about tactics. And what I mean by that is, how do we do that? How, do we, how are we going to impact our culture? How are we going to demonstrate to the majority culture what it means to be a Christ follower? And I believe that the heart of this passage is an instruction book, if you will, a guidebook, if you will, for us to have some tactics to think about how we're going to, as a community of faith, but also as individuals, uh, live out this Christian life as a demonstration for the world to see. And by the way, how the world responds to that is on them. We just do what we have been called to do, and God might use that as a demonstration of his glory. I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15 here, the beginning of verse 15. Who is going to harm you, Peter asked, if you're eager to do good? What a great rhetorical question. Think about that. That is a rhetorical question. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should choose, if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear there. Who was, who's the there there? Okay, who's the there? Do not fear the world's threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere or fear Christ as Lord. Revere Christ as Lord. And this is point number one. You have nothing to fear. Now, 
Again, there's a common theme throughout the entire book of 1 Peter that we should expect difficulty when we live our life for Christ and that we'll be blessed, but we also uh, may undergo a hardship as we live our lives for Jesus. There may be a rejection from the majority culture around us. And I love how Peter begins verse 13 with a rhetorical question. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, there's an, with a rhetorical question, there's a rhetorical answer. There should be an obvious answer to that question. And the answer is nobody. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to, to do good? Nobody is what Peter asserts here as he asks the question. No one. Why? Because I am eternally untouchable as a believer. What, what real harm Peter is addressing here? What real harm can somebody do, can the world do to a believer who's living their life for Jesus? What real harm can they inflict on you? I mean, are they going to mock you? Are they going to make fun of you? Are they going to reject you and not accept you? Well, you know what? My, my acceptance or my rejection is not based upon, it's not tied to what the majority culture thinks about me. My acceptance, if you will, or my rejection is based upon how Jesus thinks about me. And by the way, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. Jesus accepts me. Jesus accepts you. And it's okay to be rejected by the world knowing that I have been loved and I have been accepted by my Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the world can't hurt me. When they mock me or when they make fun of me. What are they going to do? Are they going to hurt you physically? Are they going to harm you? Are they going to abuse you? Well, if they mistreat you, we're told here it's a crown of glory to suffer for, for what is right. My, my body is just a temporary housing for an eternal, everlasting soul. And any pain that I may face on this side of eternity is just temporary. The eternal peace and the physical restoration, it's awaiting for me in heaven. And so that's where I'm looking. That's what I'm looking ahead to. And that will never end. And so they really can't hurt me, even if they hurt me physically on this side of eternity. Are they going to kill me? <laughs> Are they going to kill you? Well, if they kill me, to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if I die, I get to be with my Savior, and I just get to experience heaven quicker. You can't hurt me. You can't harm me. You can't mock me. You can't kill me. Why? Because verse 15 says, I revere Christ apart in my heart. He has set apart in my heart, and I have King Jesus, and King Jesus has me. And when I have King Jesus, I have everything I need. I mean, is that... Is that real? I mean, yeah, amen to that, but is that true for you? Or, or is that what you anchor yourself in? Are you, are you worried about how the world might treat you or how the world might respond to you? Because Peter here is saying, and he's trying to help the Christians see this in the first century, you might have to suffer if you identify with Jesus. And so, you know, um, Paul says in one of his letters that these, these trials we have to face are light and momentary troubles compared to the eternal glory that is awaiting us. And so we've got to let our light shine. We've got to let our light shine before men. We have to live in such a way, but expect that the world uh, may reject us. And again, remember, the world's not equipped to understand. The world's not equipped to understand why we live the way that we live, why we're making the choices that we make. And so we've got to understand that God might use us to get the world's attention. And that should be the motivation for us to live differently in a majority culture that's increasingly putting more pressure upon us because we've got to boldly represent Jesus fearless of whatever consequences may come. And this is why it says, what can they do to you? How can they really harm you? Because we have no choice in this moment but to live out our faith and to revere Jesus as King and as Lord and accept whatever comes as fitting for His glory in our lives on this, on this side of eternity. And you know... That might come in the form of intimidation. 
That might come in the form of threats. It may come in the form of suffering of some kind. But Peter's basically saying, rhetorically, they can't touch you. They can't hurt you. They can't affect your eternity because your eternity is secure in Christ. And so we live out fearlessly with intention. And this is a great command that we have. But I need you to hear this. That command is for us individually. But it's also, this is the beauty of us as Christians We have been placed strategically in a community of faith to help us in this endeavor. You're not supposed to be Bear grills all by yourself, survivalist out there in the world. You have been placed in a community of believers for us to encourage each other as we have to face whatever is happening to us, whatever response is invoked by the majority culture. And so we're not taking on this mission by ourselves. We're not just parachuting in. We're on a team. We work together. The church is a community of Christ followers, brothers and sisters in Christ to lock arms together on this mission. And so really, point number two is our community. Listen, our community is a gospel apologetic. Our community should be a gospel proof. In other words, the world should see us and how we treat each other in our Uh, This little body of believers up here on this hill, all of us as we're dispersed out of the community, the world should see how we treat each other and how we live together in community as a gospel proof. Those people are different. Those people treat each other differently. Those people love differently. They, They react to each other. They treat each other differently in their community of faith. And I want what they've got. That's what we've been called to do. Go back to verses 8 and 9 of this passage. And if I could just kind of give you a little southern interpretation here of verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read to you what it says, but I want you to hear this from the y'all perspective here. This is a second person collective here, this command that Peter is giving. He's talking here to a group of people, not just individuals. He's saying in verse 8, finally, all y'all, y'all be like-minded. Y'all be sympathetic. Y'all love one another. Y'all be compassionate. Y'all be humble. Don't repay evil with in, evil or insult with insult, y'all. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this y'all were called so that y'all might inherit a blessing. You get the y'alls in that? He's saying, we're on a team, guys. And how we, listen, how we carry ourselves as a community, how we treat each other, how we live up to what this standard is to be like-minded, to be sympathetic, to show our love, to be compassionate, our humility, how we respond when we're hurt, when others hurt us, even in the context of this community, is actually a, a gospel decision. Our community has been designed, and you've been strategically placed in this community to be a witness to the world that they may see something different in how we live among each other. You ever thought about that? Like how we, how we treat each other in this church how, how, you, how you respond to each other. Look at these uh, commands here. The first one is being like-minded. This is how we get along. This is, this is one, the first thing. is how we get along. We're working together. We're, we're unified. But, but, now, it doesn't say that we're uniform. And I like that. Because there's, there's variations within this. We all have a lot of variety within our body. Lots of opinions about lots of different things. Believe me, I hear them. And they're not the same. But, but, but we have a common denominator. And that common denominator is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. 
It's that we have anchored our lives and we have experienced the power of the, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And we have that in common. And so that appreciation for the gospel, the gospel that has changed us, has given us a mission because we want others to experience what we have experienced together. And we know that Jesus might change their life. And so we work together for the greater mission. We work together to boldly share Jesus into our community. And this means we've got to protect the unity of our church. Because we've got to be rowing in the same direction and not against each other. And we can't get sidetracked by agendas or factions or pet projects so that we can propel the gospel forward. Our community displays a witness in the fact that we are like-minded. But also in that we are sympathetic. This is how we act as a family. That word sympathetic is phileo. It means a brotherly love. It means brothers and sisters. It's how you treat each other. We are sympathetic. I'm glad I said we're not pathetic, but we're sympathetic. Okay. We're sympathetic. You know, um, how do you treat your family? By the way, did you pick your family? No, God put you in a family. Uh, some church people are weird. I wouldn't pick some of y'all to do life with, but guess what? God put you here. <laughs> God put me here. We're here in this church together, and we've got, listen, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and what holds us together is this, common, is this common bond of the gospel, but also this command that we have to love each other like family. We are family, right? We're family. We've got to love each other. We've got to work hard at this. We've got to, to work at loving each other and how we, how we take care of each other to be connected. And, you know, it's, it gets harder as the church has grown over the past few years to stay connected because you don't know everybody. I can't even keep track of everybody's names. But what you've got to do is you've got to think about in the context of this church, I'm in a circle of people and we're taking care of each other and we're loving each other in this way. And this is the, the third point of this is how we love each other. He says you've got to be uh, to love one another, to be affectionate, and to be compassionate. This describes how we treat each other. In other words, have you thought about this? The world needs to see the love of God. Do you agree with that? The, the world needs to see the love of God. We are, listen, the church, the body of Christ, we are the tangible demonstration of the love of God. People need to know that God loves them. Well, what are they looking to? They're looking to the people that love God and how they treat each other as a demonstration to the world of what it really means to be a Christ follower. And where do I get that? Well, Jesus said it this way in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is a command from Jesus with a direct purpose, to love each other. Why? Because the world, listen, the world needs to know that we are his disciples, and they're going to know it by how we treat each other, how we love one another, how we take care of each other. We've got to grow and be intentional in growing in our affection and our compassion for each other. Have you ever thought about this? It's actually a mission decision to love the people in this church. That, listen, the gospel hinges on, the people's responsiveness to the gospel hinges on how you and I love each other, how we take care of each other, how we're compassionate and affectionate toward one another, how we love each other and sympathetic with each other. That, that is a demonstration. And by the way, that's not how the world lives. That's not how the community at large lives. In an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mindset as people step on people on the way to the top, as many people leave a wake of destruction behind them and their relationships and the wreckage of how they treat their neighbors, how they treat their family, how they treat their co-workers, we've been called to live differently. And this means that we are active in this. We actively care for each other. Because 
the world is becoming increasingly disconnected. The world is becoming increasingly individualistic. And we have to fight against that as a body, as a body of believers and as the family of God, that we're not going to live like that and we're not going to act like that. We're going to set out to love each other and take care of each other in a certain way. Scott Lane, come on up this way. Scott is our chairman of deacons, and he shared with me this past week just some, some things he had been reading. Somebody had shared something with him about how their experience in, in church, and it really impacted me. And I said, Scott, I'm actually talking about how we need to love each other as a church, and I want you to share, if you would, uh, just share what you read and what you experienced this past week. Thanks, Scott. was um, a member of a chat group um, here locally, and uh, a couple people were talking, um, a lady and a man were talking, the man was saying how he, he grew up, or he had a friend that uh, was down in Atlanta and is moving to Northwest Utah to escape the clown show, so he call, called it the clown show, um, you know, basically get away from city life and uh, the craziness of it all and, and things that's going on, he said, uh, he was also raised, um, um, his friend was raised just like he was, and he said uh, his parents who never took him to church or encouraged church or even to study the Bible. And uh, the lasting effect, he said, even after recently being born again, he says, I still don't feel like I fit into the church that I've been going to and lately simply don't even want to go. And, um, and that struck me. sad, right, and uh, she said that, she said something about, you know, with struggling with people, and he said, that's not really the issue, he says, I just don't fit in, uh, the only person from the church who reaches out is the pastor, and then rarely, and by text. says he's always had this misguidedly naive notion that churches were about community, forming communities that choose to look to God together. And, um, I can say that uh, Debbie and I, we've, as a family, we experienced this even after we moved here and started visiting churches. And, uh, you know, you walk into a church and next thing you know, you got 300 eyeballs staring at you like who are you right and we went to another church and the lady come up and actually had the, the nerve to say you're sitting in my seat right and um, it's like well okay I'm looking around for names I, you know I don't I don't see assigned seats here right and um, but then we came here right and we met Elvis at the door where he met us. And uh, if you're here, he, he knows. He knows what I'm saying. But he made us feel welcome before we even got in the doors. Right? And that's what we need to do as Christians is to make people feel welcome here. And I think we do a great job of that, right? That's our, our second um, thing, you know. 
worship, connect, serve, and share, right? It's kind of our core values, right? Our second thing is connect, right? Make people feel welcome because they're hurting out there, and uh, it's it's getting crazy. It's getting crazier by the minute. And um, what I thought uh, she answered him, she said, you are a light, and God can easily use one person that extends his or her identity or understands his or her identity to eventually touch many hearts to also know that their identity and destiny to know how much they are loved leaves no expectations of others but only a desire to love as we are loved by God. So I, I guess that's my challenge and our challenge to you as a, as a church is to go out into the community and love them like you are loved by God and let them see the difference in, in you and in us and so that they'll want to come join us. And we have to fight for that as a church. We have to fight to maintain that, particularly as our church has grown, as there are newcomers that are here. We can't lose that. And by the way, it, it is so impactful what Scott said about this, you know, this individual who's basically said, hey, nobody reaches out to me except the pastor. And because, you know, um, we're kind of like the professional Christians, you know. <laughs> and if it's our job to do that, people would receive it differently than somebody who just cared enough to reach out to somebody because they, they noticed they weren't there. Somebody that they have connected to relationally as, as opposed to, if you will, the professional or the pastor. Uh, who's, who's thinking and looking out for others. And so I have a question, a couple questions for you to think about as you're here at East Pickens. Who do you care for? Who, who are your people? Who are the people that you're caring for in this church? Who are you connecting with? You know, I'm not expecting everybody in this room to know everybody's names. I can't, I don't know everybody's names, honestly, in this room. I'm trying, but I'm working at it. But it's going to be impossible in this room for you to really feel relationally connected to people. You've got to get in a small circle. You've got to, as we think about worship, connect, serve, and share, you've got to find that circle of people to do life with that, that you know that they're going to be there, that you know them, and they know you, and you're keeping up with each other. I mean, to whom are you showing affection, as Peter addresses here? Whom are you showing affection and compassion for? When's the last time that someone came to your mind who you haven't seen in a while at church and you just checked on them, you called them, or you texted them and said, hey, hey man, I hadn't seen you at church, hey lady, I hadn't seen you in a while, you're just on my mind and I'm thinking about you. If somebody missed a Sunday or two, would somebody even notice in our church? This is the, the struggle that I feel as a pastor in looking out. I want you to have compassion. I want us to work hard at maintaining our, our unity in this way, that we love each other and we love each other well with affection and compassion that we're showing this toward each other. And by the way, another side of this of showing compassion and affection is that we cannot let divisions and arguments last long here at church. Notice what I said, last long here, because, hey, we're all sinners. Sinners going to sin. Okay? You're going to get hurt in this church. You stay around long enough, you're going to get offended. Uh, you're going to get disappointed. You're going to get hurt probably by me and other people in this church because I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners here, and we're doing life together. And as we do life together, this is, it's just going to happen. We are going to hurt, and we're going to disappoint each other. But what, listen, what you do with that hurt in this community is very important. Because what differentiates us as a Christian community from the secular world and their community is that we are people of grace and we are people of forgiveness and we are people of reconciliation. And the greatest act of love that you can have for somebody in this church is to choose to forgive them when they've wronged you or hurt you. 
And if you don't do that, you are creating a division or a faction that the world might be watching. How do those Christians treat each other when they hurt each other? How they treat each other when they disappointed each other? Did they seek out reconciliation and forgiveness? Or did they sulk up and just treat each other meanly and, 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 and let it get in the way? Well, some of you say, well, I don't know if I have that or not. Let me give you an example. Is there somebody right now that if you saw them at Walmart, you'd run? Or you'd avoid the aisle? Or you'd crane your neck around the end cap to see if they're coming and then jet quickly? Listen, because relationship's not right. Because you have offended or they've offended or they've hurt you or you've hurt them and there's not been forgiveness extended and reconciliation. You know, the, listen, the world believes in retaliation. We believe in reconciliation. And there's a difference there. There's forgiveness offered there. Why? Because we love each other and because we're family and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, do your blood family hurt you? Do they disappoint you? Do they let you down? You might even retaliate, but that's the point, not the point. Eventually, because of the relationship, you will choose to reconcile. You'll choose to forgive. Why? Because the relationship is that important. You need to understand, if you have a problem with somebody in this church, you are affecting our gospel witness with the world that is watching, who needs to see people who love each other, who are willing to forgive each other and reconcile. Don't you get your feelings hurt and leave this church. Get right with the people that are hurt. Make sure you're a minister of reconciliation. Don't you stomp away unreconciled from your spiritual family. And this is the difference between us and secular community. All right. So let's, let's move on down here. He says here, Peter says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't, be, don't understand retaliation or insult for insult. You repay evil with good. There's too much at stake here. Life is too short. Eternity's too long to not resolve, resolve your hurt and move forward. Amen? Now, that is collectively how we've got to protect our body and the unity of our church. What you also need to understand, though, is there is an individual responsibility here because we as individuals make up the collective community. So how you live as an individual actually is reflective of the community as a whole. And so this isn't just a y'all thing. In fact, verses 10 through 12, verses 8 through 9 were the y'all, you know, do these things for y'all. Verses 10 through 12 are actually individual commands. Listen to this. Uh, verses 10 through 12. He's actually quoting Psalm 34, uh, verses 12 through 16 here in this passage. For whoever, this is verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 3. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's actually speaking here uh, to individuals to make the right choices personally so that it doesn't affect us as a collective whole. In other words, if I can say it this way, the, wor the world, okay, they're going to judge the church. Listen, they're going to judge us collectively as a whole by how you live and act in the community. The, the world is going to judge the community by how you as an individual live in this, in this community and the choices that you make. We bear that. And this is part of the problem because a lot of people aren't living out their faith. In fact, uh, they're, they're more, uh, they're more uh, open to, they're more about, as it says in verse 15, defending the faith and all these kind of verbal sparring, if you will, as opposed to what he's describing here as living the life in such a way that demonstrates the gospel. There's two ways that are described here in verses 10 through 12. The first is how you talk, how you talk. Keep your tongue from evil, he says. Keep your lips 
uh, from deceitful speech. Don't use your words to stir up evil or to lie. Tell the truth. Choose to edify people around you and not to tear them down. Be known for your honesty. Be a person whose word is their bond. Uh, be known for that. Be, be known for a person who speaks truth. Only truth comes out of your mouth and you're dependable and you're trustworthy. Verse 11 talks about turning from evil and doing good, seeking out peace and pursuing it. This means that I turn from evil, which means I turn to God, and I'm living my life in an orientation of such a way that I'm trying to honor and please God with my actions. I'm a person of peace. I'm known as a peacemaker. I'm not one who stirs up strife, that when I see strife, I, I'm a person of peace, and I try to make it right. I run after righteousness. I'm striving to please God because I, as it says in verse 15, revere him in my heart, and I want God to be honored with my life. I want to demonstrate what spiritual help looks like to a watching world who's dying in their sins. I'm going to make a conscientious decision that as an individual, I'm going to live my life in such a way, separate from the community, but as an individual in this community, that they may see Jesus in me and through me. Are you doing that at your workplace, in your neighborhood, with your family, with the people around you? Do you have enough courage to live your life in such a way that people might See the difference and, and want to know why you are different as opposed to how the world's living. Maybe you've heard it said this way. You've got to build a platform before you preach from it. And this is why so many modern Christians are terrible evangelists because their life's not backing up what they say, to be honest. But you've got to see there's too much at stake here. In fact, to go to verse 15, again, we, we, we dropped off here uh, at the beginning of verse 15. I'll read it again from the beginning. But in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who seeks, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Yes, you have, you've been called to be prepared. That's what he says in verse 15. Be prepared to share. Be prepared to defend the gospel. Be prepared to be an apologetic, to be able to explain what you believe and why you believe it. Because basically what Peter's describing here is that, that you've got to live your life in such a way that people know, notice a difference. And when they come up to you and ask you, what's the difference? You're able to articulate why you have a hope, why you live differently, why there's a righteous quality to your life as a testimony to Jesus so that you might lead somebody to Jesus. This, was, this is what he's saying here. It makes sense to you that you might live your life in such a way that they may ask and then you get to explain so that they might accept Christ. And you're looking for ways to leverage and to create those kind of opportunities. I mean, I appreciate it when somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, I got somebody I want you to share the gospel with. I've been talking with them. I want you to share the gospel. I, I really count that as a privilege. But listen, I'm not a, this is not a used car lot, and I'm not the sales manager. I'm not here to close the deal for you. Like, you should know, you should know the gospel. You should have a, 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 an evangelistic outline in your heart and your mind. I mean, if, I'm just saying, if somebody comes up to you at work this week and says, Hey, I've been watching you, and you've been living differently. Tell me, how, tell me how, did you get, how did you get that? I want what you've got. Explain it to me and show me how. Don't go, hold on, let me go get my manager. Don't do that. Like You need to be in that moment prepared to share the hope, the reason for the hope, he says, the reason for the hope that, that you have, that you can be prepared in that way 
when you have those opportunities? What would you say? How would you start? What scripture would you use? If you don't have something in your heart and your mind in a way to be able to present the gospel and you've been a Christian for any length of time, shame on you. You need to have the gospel in your heart and be able to articulate it to other people. Because if you live for Christ and it's evident, people are going to notice. And when the time is right and they want to know why you live a certain way, you will be ready. And by the way, um, he, noted, he says in verse 15 that we get to explain the hope that we have. Christians should be hopeful people. And we, we live in a world that doesn't have a whole lot of hope. We live in a very discouraged, downtrodden, anxious, pessimistic day. And we as Christians should be a beacon of hope. Why? Because we know what, where this is headed and we know what's beyond this life. And we have a bright future in Jesus. Amen? That changes us. It changes how we see the world today. It changes how we see eternity. And so we should be an optimistic people. We're not downtrodden, anxious, and pessimistic. We should be people of peace. We should be people of confidence. We should be people of optimism. Why? Because we have a hope, and the hope is in Jesus. And we should share that hope with the people around us. Now, he also says here, go back to the passage here, that we should share this hope, but he says how we should do it. Peter says, share your hope with gentleness and respect. This is really important, all right? What's the opposite of gentleness and respect? Rude, brash, argumentative. You know, Christians in our witness should be whimsical. Christians in our witness should be empathetic. We should be engaging. We should be in dialogue. We should be in relationship with people. We should be able to share what's on our heart as a means because we love someone. Sharing our faith is a means of caring the world for the world around us. We share because we we care. Now, can I give a, a word of advice here? Just real quick. It's free, free advice. You ready? If your means of sharing is social media, number one, that should not be your primary evangelism strategy. It shouldn't be. And, and as you share, listen, as you share on social media, it better be whimsical, it better be optimistic, it better be hopeful, it better not be pessimistic, it better not be uh, leading to the anxiousness and downtroddenness of our world. It should be a bright beacon. But here's what I need you to understand. It, that's, not, that's not conversation. When you share on social media like that, you're just, you're just sharing one-way communication. Many people are just lobbing truth bombs over the wall, you know, at people. And quite frankly, a lot of people on social media, even Christians, are passive-aggressive jerks. If that's you, you need to stop that mess because you're, you're not representing us in a right way. Yes, it's truth, but it's truth and love. And, and by the way, it needs to be more in the context of your life, how you're living, people watching you, people seeing how you live, than just lobbing truth bombs at people in a one-way one communication and not being able to talk back and forth. If that is your, listen, if that is your primary means of evangelism, you're way off base. By the way, when's the last time a social media post changed your life? When's the last time you read something and the light bulb went off and you said, you know what, I'm going to change the way I think about that because of that person's social media post? Rare, ever. Right? So be careful in that. That's not our strategy. Our strategy should be dialogue. It should be relationship. It is out of compassion and affection. It's out of a heart for understanding and gentleness and respect, as Peter says here. And most of social media posts are attention-grabbing parades of flesh. They're one-way communication. It's a way of shouting at people, honestly, and not really listening. So be careful in that. 
And this is the last point. And this is just, as you think about this whole passage, look at verses 8 through 17 and see how much Peter describes how you live, okay, your lifestyle as opposed to uh, your, your ability to, to explain and, and, and have discourse. He said, I mean, he spends many more verses on lifestyle as opposed to apologetics. And I'm afraid so many people are into the argumentative thing. They're into the, the whole, you know, uh, defending of the faith that they forget what Peter is addressing here. The primary, your primary means of reaching people is your lifestyle, how you live, not so much how you can argue. Listen, you need to make a difference instead of making a point. Can I say it that way? Make a difference instead of making a point. Because people don't care what you think or what you say or your opinion until they know that you really care about them as individuals. And we need to carry ourselves as, as he is describing here, as Peter is describing here. He knows that how you live is more important than how well you can argue a point. Paolo Coelho said it this way, the world is changed by your example, not by your opinion. I'm not saying you shouldn't be able to defend the faith and explain things, but I'm saying this. That is step two. Step one is you live your life in such a way as a demonstration of the gospel, as an individual and as a community of faith, that we love each other, that we are like-minded, that we are sympathetic, that we love one another, we show compassion to one another, uh, we show affection to one another, we take care of each other, and out of that, listen, out of that, we revere Christ as Lord, and as we live out that faith, when people have questions and want to know why we are different, we are able to articulate that and share with them the gospel and explain why we are different. I'm afraid some people have that all reversed. Primary, how are you living? How are you living in community? How are you living at your work? How are you living uh, in your neighborhood? How are you living among your friends that they might see Jesus in you? This is scary, but... You ready? You are the proof that the gospel is true. So to summarize, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So don't be fearful. Be bold. Live your life to glorify Jesus. Be ready to explain as people notice. Share Jesus through your actions and your words. So what are you going to do? How are you going to live this out? Well, number one, are you living your life for Jesus now in front of your family, in front of your coworkers, in front of your, in front of your school, in front of your friends, in front of your in full view of your neighborhood and your community? Are you living for Christ regardless? Are you living fearless? That's point number one. Are you living in a, a heart of love and are you living in a, in a community of faith where you're taking care of people, people taking care of you and you're demonstrating the gospel in that way? Are you... Are you engaged? Some of us aren't engaged right now. We're kind of showing up on Sunday and we're disappearing out of here, out of this room. You got to take it a step further. You got to get in a class. You got to get in a small group. You got to get connected to some people in a home group or a Sunday school class and do life with people. If your coworker came up to you tomorrow and said, I want to know the gospel, would you be able to share with them the hope that you have? Are you ready to defend the gospel, not just with your words, but also with your life and your actions?